You're listening to Personal Rejection Letter, a podcast by writers with day jobs, with your hosts, Dan Lipman and Kelly Daniels. Hi, Dan. Hello, Kelly Daniels. How are you? Very fine indeed, my friend. Very fine indeed. That's the best way to be. I'm also <laughs> fine, but not indeed. No. Indeed, that means that, oh, your deeds are fine, right? Not only it, are you feeling fine, you're doing fine stuff. And uh, what could be finer than uh, podcasting? It's the finest thing in the world. Yeah. One of them. And... It's a beautiful day, and it's May. Is it May? It's June. It's probably July by the time you hear this. It is, yeah. I believe it is uh, 2018. It is the future. And I, let me ask you a question, Kelly. Have you ever finished a book and like gotten all the way to the end of it and were like, what? Yes, every book. <laughs> every, every. every book I've ever read, I was like, what the hell? What? <laughs> How come you kept reading? Because um, I was enjoying it. I was enjoying the uh, oh. characters, the scenes, the uh, writing. I was enjoying the voice of the author, the insights uh-huh. that came along the way. Um, a lot of things. But yeah, I, I don't finish books if I don't enjoy them at least a little. You're a stopper of reading books. If you stop, if you, you, you know, ever like, I'm going to fucking finish this book no matter what I, you know, no, I'm not. Sometimes like, did you ever, sometimes I read a book just cause it's so bad that I just can't believe it. Yeah. You can't, you're waiting for it to somehow turn around and then it doesn't. I just, how low can it go? Yeah. Well, and then there's the, just under the threshold of good. And you think, you know, I'm going to keep giving it a chance. And, uh, and you know, sometimes a bad book can, have a pretty effective plot in that you do want to find out what happens, even though you're resenting it in a lot of ways. Um, Reading for the wrong reasons, my wife calls it. That's right. The famous Molly McNett, one of her aphorisms. Hey, Kelly. Yo. So a thunderstorm just uh, raged through your... uh, your Time for angry revisions. What do you got? <laughs> my revision. Oh, man. My revision isn't nearly angry enough, but I will oh, I'll try to make it a little more angry. Um, well, hearkening back to our Bob Dylan episode, um, you oh, know, Bob Dylan just released a lecture where he sort of defends his. Uh, do you did you know about this? What? That Bob Dylan released a lecture um, about his. um his um, Nobel Prize. No, I did not know that. Yeah, it, it's part of the to to accept the prize and and the money. Um, you have to do a lecture, a public lecture about. Oh right, right. It. Okay. And so he actually released it with like piano kind of music in the background. Oh yeah. And uh, yeah, it's like what. It, it's a lot like a podcast episode. It's twenty seven minutes okay. long, and he's just kind of talking about in his way. 
hey man it's like this and and he um you know humbly compares himself to shakespeare um where he says that shakespeare my 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 music is not meant to be read just like shakespeare's plays were not meant to be read they were meant to be performed on the stage and is um, that an imitation of him yeah okay yeah man he doesn't say man does he but he always sounds like that um so all his I mean, uh, he, his lovers all his his pro dylan people pro pro nobel jumped on it and go and it, and it seemed pretty eloquent i heard a clip on npr um okay ha, and ha. uh so nice one bob you, you you're just like shakespeare i do think that there's a point to to what he said that uh but I also think that Shakespeare's plays can be very fruitfully and read, like on a page. And Bob Dylan's lyrics just cannot. You cannot put those on pages and sit there and read them for hours and talk about them. And they don't work unless he's singing. Whereas Shakespeare's plays work on stage, but they also work as reading material. Um, yeah, but they don't work as songs. They sure do. I, I would love to see him all put to music and like rap. there's a couple of those plays where they're like are like singing fools and stuff like that. And I'm telling you, though, you can't remember the tunes. They're, that's how bad they are. Oh, yeah, that's that. true. Shakespeare wasn't that good. Um, but I wanted to revise something from that episode and it was just like bad sort of podcasting on my part. Um, but then again, maybe there is no bad podcasting. Maybe the only bad podcast is the podcast that isn't cast. Um, I feel like there's bad podcasting. You think so? Well, this is just bad sort of writing in a way, even though I was, I'll just get to it. I was sort of bagging on, I, I, my point was that Bob Dylan, that the prize for him wasn't really about him and his music so much as it was the baby boom generation giving that award to themselves and their young memories. And I do recall that. Yes. Um, and I, and I still, I stand by that as a, as an idea, but I, but I kind of lampooned the baby boomers by saying, yeah, it was like when me and moon moonbeam were hanging out at the VW bu bus at the music fest. That was just like the, the worst cliche or stereotype of, I mean, first off the, the numbers of baby boomers who are actually hippies is minuscule. Like this, the percentages are tiny and yeah. just moonbeam and the bus and the music fest, just straight out of central casting. And as a writer, this is the kind of thing that when I write it, if I'm, you know, that I get rid of it as soon as I can, because that's obviously just bad writing and it's lazy and it's basically not true. Um, so were I to do it over, I would try to be a little bit more fair to that generation and not kind of use that particular stereotype to, uh, well, do you, do you want to actually revise it or do you just want to, do you just want to strike it out? Um, I could just strike it out and no, I mean to revise it, we'd have to do the whole episode over again, which I'm, I'm sure neither one of us are really. That's season two. We're just going to do every episode we've done over again. Eh? <laughs> That's a fascinating experiment. Yeah. That would be. And especially when we do the ones that we've actually recorded twice, twice. because we lost the, <laughs> yeah. the the original recording. So we'd be we'd have a third crack at uh, A.J. Wilson 82's idea. Yeah. 
No, I think that uh, that's, I would consider it, but let's, we'll talk about this on our long bike ride. Um, okay. In a couple of days. That would, that would be interesting. Let's wait till we get really to, to the end of our rope in terms of just doing regular old episodes. But I, I do like that. Um, so what about you? What's your, uh, revision? Is um, it angry? I, I'm, oh, I'm so angry about it's, it's going back to that Bob Dylan episode from like four months ago. Hey, I just, just a look at the mind of Kelly Daniels. Did, has that been bothering you since then? Or did you re-listen to it? Uh, it bothered me when I listened to it and then I forgot about it, but then I was thinking, I got to come up with some revisions, man. And I'm like, oh yeah, that one. No. Oh, you know what? No, it it was the Bob Dylan appearing on NPR with his new lecture. That's just a couple days ago. That reminded me. Oh, yeah, that moonbeam thing. I wanted to revise that. You had this outstanding meatball you had to get to. Okay, that makes sense. My revision is. uh, uh, Hold on. I just had it in my head. What I was going to say. Shoot. You, you know read? what it's like to get old, Kelly? You know, you're a little bit younger than me, so you don't know, but yeah. I don't ever forget uh, things. Oh, I remember. I remember. I got it. Uh I I wanted to call attention to the last episode that that aired, or the last episode that dropped as the young people say, uh was the one uh, was we were talking about Kindle versus uh paper, I guess. Yeah. It was kind of a free-form episode, and we recorded it. I was in my office. It was one of the two episodes we, that, where I was in my office at Northern Illinois University, and uh, a student walked in, and I had a lovely exchange with the student, and I think you said hello, and she said hello, and I think she said I was her favorite teacher, something along those lines. Couldn't wait to hear that part. Uh, it wasn't in the episode. What Ouch. happened? Ouch. I don't know. Didn't make it through management. Yay. It's a good thing that Gabe is not on the payroll anymore. Ooh. He'd be hearing from me about that. Yeah. Yeah, man. That's but, uh, uh, that's tough. That's tough. I think you'll verify that uh, the, the student said that I was among her favorite teachers and certainly the best one at NIU. Is that, is that how you remember it? I think that she seemed to like you. I don't remember that what you just said. I cannot say that I heard that direct quote. Um, but she seemed a, a friendly, a friendly actually, student who seemed well disposed toward her teacher, Mr. Libman. And uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I believe you that she thinks you're your favorite teacher. Why not? Okay. And we're just going to go with that. Kelly, yeah. there's three kinds of difficult books. There's the long book, the old book, and the complicated book. Uh, <laughs> I, I love I it. I made some categories. <laughs> yeah. The, the complicated book, I would say, is like Ulysses. The long book, I would say Proust is an example of that, Search for Lost Time, both of which I've read. Uh, old book, I would say Paradise Lost. Couldn't get through it. Try to read it. Have yeah. you ever read Paradise Lost? Not all of it. I've read some parts. The Satan parts are good. Yes. Arise. Uh, I mean, I, I read the- Awake or be forever damned, he says to his <laughs> minions when they're all like down in the dumps because they just got thrown into hell. It's all the angels, you know, and they're like, oh, we fucked up. Um, anyway, I like that. And I also yeah. like the idea of it that Satan is a, a rebel leader. You know, I mean, he's the guy that went against the big, the big force and the whole, one of the big points of the Bible is do not question authority. Like, you know, you're right. the boss is the boss and you are the underling and you will go to hell if you try to, uh, 
you know, rise up. And uh, so anyway, that's what I got out of so Paradise my, Lost without my having... Inability, my inability to, to finish it, I mean, I wasn't in a class. I did read the parts that were going to be on the test back when I was in school. But is my inability to finish it my failing or is it or is it the book's failing or is it not a failing? What about, have you, you said that you had read parts of it. Did you not ever try to read the whole thing? I never tried to read the whole thing. I think I had it at the McDowell Colony. I grabbed it from the little library they have there and I read it for a yeah. while. But, you know, I mean, it gets pretty boring. Um they had a they had a signed copy because Bilton was in one of the cabins when he. <laughs> yep, that's right, that's right. Um, but you know, um, one summer, uh, years ago, like 15, 20 years ago, uh, I, I I sat down and you know I had the whole summer off and I was like I'm gonna just fucking read you know the whole Proust thing just to see what that's all about and I really uh, got quite a, I really enjoyed that and I got a lot out of the experience and uh, you know it's not a perfect book. By any means, in fact, he died before he finished revising it. So there's characters who die and then they come back to life and stuff like that. But you really do kind of feel differently about humanity when you get to that sixth book and everybody has aged to the degree that they've aged. And, and it sort of changes the way this reader looks at the world. So you get something out of it from that challenge. Uh, have you have you read Proust? Or I any, haven't. Any kind of I, long, yeah, OK. Like that? I liked, um, I'm, I'm one of those Nelsgaard fans, as mentioned every single episode. And uh, everybody said, oh, he's the new, the modern Proust. And, and so I tried to read, Pru not tried, I started reading Proust. Um, and, you know, and I just read a few pages and I'm like, eh, it's just kind of old timey and just, and I'm not getting into it. I don't have it. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't have any classes that I don't, you know, what I mean? there's no professor who's going to yeah. make me read anything anymore. So it's harder right. to put myself through a long because that one's long and old. Um, I have well, read sort of some. The, under, the undertaking of it was sort of the challenge of that summer, you know. So, like, yeah. I decided on page one I was going to read it. Yeah. So there was like really no question that I wasn't going to, but I, I I probably would have bagged on it if it was just if I was just looking for something to do. Yeah. No, I haven't read it, but I've read some long and old books and some hard books, uh, especially, you know, in school you have to, and, and I enjoyed it. Um, I read Moby Dick twice, um, and I twice. liked it. Yeah, I don't know why I read it twice. Um, I wrote about it in my comprehensive exams for my PhD, too. It like, came just the question sort of, you don't know what the questions are going to be. You have to just kind of riff on these essays. And there was right. one that worked out for Moby Dick, and I was just like able to really remember details, and uh, that was sort of useful. So um, yeah, it's good for you if you take qualifying exams. The thing about Moby Dick that makes it challenging is that there are so many chapters in it that don't seem to be about the plot or about well uh, that are about the narrative that aid the narrative, but um, there's sort of like a meta quality to them when you kind you kind of get into them and you're reading about whaling and all that kind of stuff um uh but but i think like if you're approaching you can't really approach it like a novel even though i guess that's what it is yeah i think it's probably wiser to think of it as a kind of series of essays and a you know just what sure. it is it's uh, kind it's of often, an artifact yeah it was called a postmodern novel long before the postmodern era and um, even before the modern era. And so, no, it's, I thought it was fun. And I also kept my eye as far as a reader. Um, 
I kept my eye on the fact that this is a whaling adventure. They're going after a whale. And I don't, no matter how many sidetracks we take, we're still going after that whale. Mm -hmm. And so I found it easy to keep reading because I knew I'd eventually get there again. And, um, but it was hard to remember afterward, like, except for individual chapters, but, uh, and little moments here and there. But, uh, as far as like being able to recall it as a singular thing, um, I wasn't, ever able to do that very well. Um, right. My, uh, my technique for reading difficult stuff is as you, uh, last week you were talking about if it was last week, sometime in the past you were talking about enjoying a book, but then not getting it at the end. And right. uh, that I was the, I don't require that. And I don't require understanding it even in the moment. And I'm completely okay with being confused and just kind of floating along. If I f have confidence in the writer, if I feel the writer is smart, yes. if I feel the Good writer point. is just confused, then I get resentful and I don't want to go on. If I start losing trust, basically, that the writer is a real guide and not just... Yeah, your writer is your guide into the forest and... If the writer has confidence, you go, okay, this seems like we're kind of lost, but we'll get there. But then if you start getting that sense like, hmm, maybe I better start finding my own way out because it doesn't seem like this person knows where they're going. They're sort of making it up as they go along. And, and it really is funny that you can tell a writer who's a page or two ahead of you, even if they're trying to be interesting or trying to be uh, kind of uh, disc, you know, kind of hide their motives or whatever versus somebody who really is in control of what's happening. I think so. Yeah, I think it's, as a writer, I think it's not having your plot all written out, but having your your white whale, you know? I mean, you know what your purpose is. And that also goes back to the a different episode that we've done about the golden theme. Like, if you have your main theme, you have some burning idea that you need to get at, then I think the reader will always feel that you're trying to get at that burning idea even if you're going around it and, you know, missing it here and there, you're still hunting for it. But if you don't even know what you're hunting for, except maybe a book deal, you know, <laughs> then it's just yeah. a bunch of empty sort of showing off. Um, and that's when I, I turn on books, when I start feeling that, that kind of sense. Well, sometimes I feel that way with um, a, a modern book. I mean, there certainly was an idea in the 60s, and I think to a certain extent it's stuck with us that are among certain writers that you should make your book as challenging, as difficult to read as possible, and part of the pleasure is to decipher what the author's intention was. I'm thinking of somebody like Pynchon has a reputation for that, although I, don't, I, I, I get a lot out of Pynchon. I don't mind Pynchon stuff, but um, maybe uh, Barthelmey. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of a writer who... Oh, uh, William Gass. Have you ever read any Gass? Not really. I think I may have. Um, I've read some Barth that... Uh, I like Lost in the Fun House, that short story. Sure. That's, that's a lot of fun. Um, but then there's another one that's like about... It's all like... I remember talking to a professor. He was the theory guy. And I was, I was reading some Barth. And he's like, oh, yeah. He's way into Lacan in that book. And and this was when writers were 
trying to speak to literary critics directly and they were reading the French philosophy that's driving yeah, yeah. literary criticism and then ultimately the Derrida and stuff. Yeah. Like that. The Foucault and Derrida and all that and Lacan. And, and it, I just, right. I got, I got not interested in that. It started getting farther and farther away from life as it's lived and more and headier and headier and more and more abstract. And I realized at some point as a, reader and as a writer that this is not why I'm a writer this is not what drew me to reading this is not what why I went to an MFA program so that I could start playing around with ideas in my mind and you know what I mean and and so I wanted more visceral sort of stuff and so I kind of got away from that and it may be that the stuff I read isn't difficult in the way that uh, it should be I suppose but I still feel like I get a lot out of books that aren't that are fairly simple on their surface. Oh yeah. So the, in other words, there's not, uh, the complexity is not on such a showy level. Yeah. I have this little Buddhist sort of idea, little parable in my head about how I'm sure it's been said in different ways, but this is my own. I came to this on my own. Like there's something about getting, to where you need to go, to finding wisdom. You have to master complexity and then you have to return to simplicity. So okay. the writer yeah. who's just simple, who doesn't know any of that, who doesn't know how to do complex stuff, who just tells simple stories, those are going to be simple stories. But then there's the writer who's mastered complexity and who just does all this complexity and they, but it's mostly just that's just practice. It's not really doing the storytelling work in my opinion, but then it's the, the writer that's really there is the one that goes through the complexity and then returns to simple storytelling and yet knows all the complexity and you can feel mm -hmm. it somehow as a reader. I'm pretty abstract stuff that I'm talking about, but that's just this, this little mantra or this little idea that I hold. Um, you have it pinned to your bulletin board right over your laptop? I don't, but I had um, an ex-girlfriend or girlfriend at the time gave me a Buddha, a little Buddha, um, the fat Buddha, the fat bald Buddha with yeah. the big, huge ear lobes. As my son yeah. said, how come Absolutely. he has such big ears? My five-year-old son asked me that yesterday. I'm like, hmm, I don't know. I didn't have a good answer for that. But this little, yeah. this little brass Buddha um, statue is usually on my writing desk because to kind of remind me to be joyful in my writing and not, and that it isn't drudgery and it isn't hell. Like people like to make it seem like. That's interesting. We should, that maybe that's a topic for like what kind of knickknack stuff you have on your desk and like <laughs> what, what little tricks you got to have to get you through writing a, a page that you're having trouble with. I'm trying to think what I have. I have a postcard up here in my office of the uh, Brooklyn Bridge. I always like the Brooklyn Bridge. I don't know why. Yeah, people were selling it. I think it's pretty. <laughs> Remember yeah. that? That's, they were yeah, maybe it? that's it. Yeah, you're a con artist. Being a writer is being a con artist. Yeah, we're engaged in flim-flam of some kind. This guy, this very self-serious, self-important guy, he was one of the better writers in my MFA, but just did, he was a person that just didn't have a sense of humor. And um, on his writing desk, he had like a, it's so pretentious, it's painful. He was young too. So let's, we were all pretty young in our thirties, 
like that seems young now. Um, his he had yeah. like a clock that was stuck on midnight or noon, and um, and then he also had a poster of a guy who's about to be executed by firing squad, and he like has a cigarette in his mouth, and he's like smiling a little in this brave way. And that was his; those were his uh, writing kind of totems. Time is so. In other out. words, yeah, you're you're facing that firing line. Yeah, I guess that's the human condition, right? We're all going to die, and and yet you're going to go at it bravely. Um, uh-huh. It's a good sentiment, but it's pretentious to put that as your yeah. <laughs> your writing thing, especially if you like invite people over to your house and show them your writing desk and point out these knickknacks. Right. So he was. Hey, um, did you? Well, we we only talked about this briefly in the morning, but did you come up with any the names of any sort of difficult books that you thought either were or were not working? Um, I read and wrote papers about the crying of Lot Forty Nine. Oh, um, mentioned. I just yeah, and that was like the hottest book in graduate school. No, undergrad, and it went you know, into I think graduate that that's, school. It's, I think it's taught a lot because it's pension, but it's also really short. So you can't do yeah. gravity's rainbow unless you're going to do a whole semester to it. But here's this 200 page one that you can get through about the post office. Yeah. But I, I finally got to the, after having read it at least three times and written two papers about it, I finally, you know, I just don't, it may be that I'm not getting it or that I just don't think there's anything to get. But I didn't like yeah. the story. I didn't like the writing. And there were some parts that were sort of funny. But ultimately, I'm just like, I don't, the pension thing, I don't, I don't understand it. I'm not really that into it. Um, and I think the same could be said for Don DeLillo and, and probably all of those, those kind of self-referential postmodern, you know, the sort of writing of the cartoon characterization of of novel novel writing um none yeah. of those quite got to me um a book that did i think work tremendously I, moby dick i liked um and uh, if shakespeare is considered complex i i actually do enjoy reading his plays the tragedies and hamlet i've read a lot and yeah watched and also i i love um tom stoppard's um, contribution to Hamlet in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Right. I think that's my favorite sort of commentary, artistic comment on another art and piece of art. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I've mentioned this book before, um, Peter Mathiasen's Far Tortuga, which I think is really, mm-hmm. is actually quite challenging, especially since there's no dialogue tags at all and it's only in dialogue. There's no, almost no, there's very little description of anything and scene setting. And yet, um, I found it enjoyable all the way through and, and, and thought provoking and, and heavy. You've said in the past that, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's not that difficult, that, not that it's not difficult, but that you sort of get on the train at some point and it just carries you right through. I think so. Yeah, very much so. And it's I an adventure I felt that way about too. gravity's, Go ahead. gravity's rainbow. Is, that's the pension I really liked. Yeah. I never read it. It was long. I think it's worth reading. Uh, yeah, Crying a Lot 49 is just kind of goofy. I read Vineland, which I, I also didn't like all that much. Yeah, um, I never read that. 
one of my favorite Dennis Johnson, who just died, by the way, one of my absolute literary heroes, um, and uh, died at sixty-seven. Seems kind of young. I would have very young. I wouldn't have minded him living to be ninety-something. Out of all the people to live to be ninety-something, I think I would have wanted Dennis Johnson to be one of them. But um, sure. His favorite, my favorite book of his is was not got mixed reviews. Almost nobody's read it. It's called Already Dead, and um, the subtitle is A California Gothic. And he uses the same techniques that he would later use for Tree of Smoke, which you won the National Book Award for, um, about Vietnam. But this is actually about this hippie community in Northern California, and there's a witch. And she's kind of a con artist who, you know, like a new age sort of, she channels like past lot, you know, ghosts from the past. But it's, it's awesome in that it's, she's a con artist and it's bullshit and it's completely real. And she really is a witch who's channeling these things. Um, and uh, it's got all this kind of like past live, this weird ghost stuff going on. And yet, and it's just got this incredibly complicated plot with dozens and dozens of storylines. Not all of them ever conclude. And I just love it. I love every bit of it. And I don't care that some of the storylines just drop off and don't really add to the main thrust. Because it's all about a place and it's about a community. Um, and it And his handling of magic, I thought, was like, I'm usually not a big, like, not into magic and in fiction yeah there's days. a real line that you you there's a line that you really can't cross but yeah i well i'm gonna put that down on my list he he has read. this point where this guy um this cop walks in to there's a cop is one of the characters he walks in to meet the the woman who's called a witch and she's also sexy as you can imagine um, oh she, my god witches are all sexy have you ever walked around the streets on halloween they're hot yep totally she's one of those Yvonne is her name. I still remember. Um, redhead. Redheaded witch. He walks in into her place, and it's this real hippie new age kind of crystals everywhere kind of thing. And she takes him into the back, and she's got this frog that she stuffs a piece of garlic in its mouth and then tapes its mouth shut. And it starts sweating this ooze off of its skin. And she scrapes the ooze off and then and they consume it it's this it's dennis johnson's riff on this drug this frog licking phenomenon that was going on people were getting a high off this poisonous frog okay um so anyway the guy takes this drug this tea and she puts it in a tea and then he walks back into the room and it's so subtle that it takes you a, a paragraph or so to realize and and enough writing has gone in between since the first time he walked in the room that you re you eventually realize that you're reading the exact same description of the room as had happened three pages before when he first walked in verbatim, like cut and paste. And it sounds weird or just like a dumb trick, but it is, it feet you get, I got at least a complete feeling of deja vu before I quite figured out what was happening. And it was such a oh, great right. presentation of a drug trip because it was so weird. Anyway, brilliant book, I think. 
and again, you have to just let go. You can't need it to make more sense than it does, in a, or the kind right. of sense that you want it to make. You have to let go of that because it's making a different kind of sense. Um, I think that, that sounds be, really interesting. Yeah, it's a good yeah. book. How about you? Um, the, well, the only other book, well, I, we mentioned this briefly, but Ulysses, you know, I, uh, is kind of a classic complex book and I sat down to read it kind of a challenge to myself and I had the annotated Ulysses with me and I would read like two lines from the James Joyce novel and then I would go to the annotated and I'd read a page and a half about all, what all the references met. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that gives you a sense of sort of owning the material or getting on top of it. And then at some point, like maybe two chapters in, I stopped using the reference material and I just read it. And it's, uh, it, it, I can't say that I understood most of it. You're not supposed to understand all of it. Well, I think I did understand most of it, but, uh, the, the swirl of ideas and the sort of not understanding every single thing that's mentioned on the page is kind of part of it because it's really tracks the one day, uh, in this guy's life and it's everything he thinks and he's, leads a pretty rich interior life and you get the sense at the end of that book that you have lived inside another person's body so going back to uh -huh. your your book that you mentioned before that we really are all the same and uh it was a really terrific experience uh i'm not sure that uh that i would have gotten more out of it or that it would have been better if i had stuck with the annotated as well but i didn't have to carry around two books with me at least so that was that was one that i think is worth it yeah I read one of the, uh, yeah, the famous, I've never read it. It's one of those ones that I should have read and that I've actually been told that if you don't read it by a certain age, you probably shouldn't because it's oh, sort that's of, interesting. I've heard that it's a young man's book, um, it, particularly young man's and, and maybe that was a criticism and maybe it wasn't, um, or maybe that's just an excuse I have for not having read it well it's a theme of the book i mean it's there's the young man daedalus and the old man bloom they're kind of like in sort of locked together throughout the novel yeah in like a cage yeah it's a cage it match is, and it, only one of them comes out i won't say which <laughs> one, only one of them i was thinking out. it was more like a bondage sex book it has sex with molly bloom and the last the last chapter is just molly bloom going oh yes 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 yeah she's getting it she wanted it, and she's getting it. Is that how it is? That's the plot. I don't want to give it away. Okay. Yeah, I don't want to give it away. I guess I better read it. Yeah. It's a spoiler. Yeah. Uh, hey, Kelly. Yes. What are you writing, working on, teaching upon? Um, did I write anything down? No, I actually didn't. I have a blank space there. Um, but I guess Just I think can... think of something. I will think of something. Um, right now, I am taking a break from the novel that I'm working on. And I went to my uh, short, my uh, essay collection that I'm always sort of like moving the essays. It, the trick to the essay collection to me seems like getting the right ones in the right order and then contextualizing them the right way. Oh, okay. And not all of them fit and they can fit in different ways. So I think I, I found a new configuration and I'm writing and I'm going to kind of revise through it to, to sort of make them feel more like a book and less like a, just a series of, of individual pieces and we'll see where it uh -huh. goes. So anyway, that's kind of what I've been working on. It's like on. the essays are having a conversation with each other. I think so. Yeah. One speaking to the next and then that's the next one the passes. If you, 
if you if you ask me to blurb your book, that's what I'm gonna say. They're speaking to each These other. These essays are having a conversation. I think they're more like that um, exquisite corpse thing. One of them says something to the next, and the next one says something to the yeah. one out of that. And by the you get to the end, you don't even remember what the thing said at the beginning. It's that telephone game. <laughs> it's funny, right? So different because they mishear each other. Yeah, that's what I'm going for. Good. All right. Uh, I'm oh. going to do mine now. Yeah. What do you, <laughs> I'm sorry if I didn't this seem enthusiastic. What are you doing, man? What's your, gosh, well, what's going on in your life? This isn't exactly a, a WRT thing, but it's, it's, it's sort of thematically cogent and I'm excited about it. We're recording this on, uh, I don't know, the first week of June and, uh, in a couple weeks I'll be traveling. And, uh, as you know, Kelly, June 16th is Bloomsday which is the day that uh, uh, Bloom has his adventure in Dublin. Yeah. Are you going to uh, be in Dublin? This, well, listen to this. I'm going to be I, I, I'm going to be in flight on that day, and I will be in the Dublin airport having a layover. So almost, like as close yeah. as you can be without actually being there. So like, it, I'm going to be in Dublin, but just in the airport on Bloom's Day. I think wow. that's something. That yeah. is really something. They'll have. Do you think they'll have an Irish pub in uh, the airport in Dublin? In the air, I I hope so. I hope that there's a way to get an alcoholic beverage, maybe a beer or uh, one of those whiskeys. I bet you they have a, yeah, a Hennessy's Tavern in the airport or in a Dublin. Jameson. I don't know. I hope it's like American airports where there's just like a lot of people on couches and McDonald's and uh, um, what else do they have in airports? That's oh, it. they have bars and stuff. They have TGI Fridays. <laughs> yeah. They have all yeah. kinds of stuff. Actually, the, the, there's a great bar in the O'Hare Airport that Rick Bayless runs. Man, they yeah. make a margarita. I've thought mm. about just going in there and get the margarita, but I don't want to go through security. I went to a bar that was really crazy. It was uh, Berghoff. Is that right? The Berg. Yeah, in Chicago. Yeah. yeah. They have a bar in the airport as well, like a little... Oh. And I walked in there, and it was unlike any other um, airport bar I'd ever seen. They're, they're pouring without measuring. They didn't have any of those measurers. They're pouring whiskeys to the top of the glass, and people are hammered. And the bartenders are just, there's no supervision. It was great. This woman wow. beside me was, was uh, talk, telling me about how her husband's having an affair, and she was just hammered. Um, and it finally got to the point where the bartender, like I asked her where she was going and she couldn't remember where her <laughs> flight was. And she was started looking through her purse and her pockets for her flight, for her itinerary and couldn't find it. And then it became just, I mean, it was sad and kind of scary. And like the bartender was sort of watching and he came over and I'm like, I think she probably needs some help. She's sort of, you know. And uh, like good, good fun. That's what I'm saying. And like I walked well, out with my whiskey to the gate because you can walk around with your drink in O'Hare, unlike other airports. I don't know if that's right anymore. Wait, what year was this? Um, five years ago, six years ago, oh, okay. something like that. All right. No, I'm pretty sure it is. I'm pretty sure that they have an open kind of policy of of drinking i think so unless they changed it really recently but that's because the democrats are running the thing 
Oh, yeah, man. They like to drink. Even though Republicans are anti-regulation, right? Seems like they would be the ones that would not, <laughs> that would just have like, hey, you can drink wherever you want. Like Europe. That's only when it comes to that's only when it comes to business rules. It's not when it it's, it has nothing to do with like if it's the fun stuff they want regulated pretty tightly. Yeah, sex and drinking, which yeah. is ever that's everything fun. Well, I'm going to give a report to uh, our friends from Personal Rejection Letter on what it's like to be sort of in Ireland on Bloomsday and Kelly Daniels. Thank you for another fun conversation. You too, Dan Libin. Always a good time. Awesome. And, um, yeah, man, I will see you pretty soon for a big, long bicycle ride. So, uh, I'm coming to your house tomorrow. You are. I will be there. I'm going to leave my house at noon. I'll be to you by 2 p.m. Gotcha. I'll be ready for you. All right. Catch you later, bro. <laughs> so. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye, man. Bye, everybody. Bye. Personal Rejection Letters produced and edited by Kelly Daniels with help from Dan Woodman. Special thanks to the Augustana College English Department for loaning us a student worker and to Sub-Atlantic for providing the theme music. We always welcome comments, suggestions, and especially praise. Say hi to Dan and Kelly on their Facebook pages or follow the podcast on Instagram or Twitter. If you like what you hear, do a podcast a solid and leave a review on iTunes. I'm Mary Carter, signing off. Talk to you next time.